technical difficulties, and that's part of our new reality now that everything is online. And so every so often we are uh, sort of slaves to our technology. That's what happened uh, a second ago. The good thing is that this afternoon at 3 o'clock, we are doing our rebroadcast of the 2019 Easter concert, and that song you just heard, of course you didn't hear it in its entirety, will be played then. It won't be? I think it's part of it. Oh, maybe that's tomorrow. You're right, that's Sunday. (laughs) Thank you. It's a good thing somebody else is in here in the sanctuary with me to correct me. That's actually Sunday, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. So that's tomorrow. Tonight, this afternoon's at 3, will be the 2018 concert. And then tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., you will get the 2019 concert. And that song is part of it. So make sure that you join us. Uh, We'll be there on all of our platforms as usual, and we hope that we will see you there and that you will enjoy uh, this Easter weekend along with us. I'm always excited about uh, Easter Sabbath because it is a wonderful time for us to think about what Jesus Christ has done. And I'm not sure that you have taken the time lately to contemplate it, but do you realize that Everything that Jesus did when he came to this earth really hinged upon his being able to raise back to life when he did. And the reason is this, every one of us, because of sin, the Bible says, is supposed to get the second death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That death that it's talking about is sort of twofold. There's this first death that was never supposed to be part of our reality that has become a part of it because of Adam and Eve's sin. So each one of us is appointed once to die, as the Bible says. But the Bible says only once. Only once is everybody appointed to die because those who live in Jesus Christ are supposed to escape the second death. The second death is the one from which you cannot come back. And the second death is the one from which Jesus did come back. When he raised back to life on his own accord, by his own power, he was conquering the second death. And by doing that, he made for us available this idea that we can escape it. So Resurrection Weekend is a big deal to us because it's the only reason why we can actually celebrate knowing that one day soon, when Jesus comes back, we can actually go to heaven with him. It's a wonderful reality. And I hope that you get in touch with that again today as we try our best to live for Jesus Christ. So, I have a few things that I want to share with you in this message entitled, The Resurrection Revealed. Let's pray and ask God to be with us. Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to thank you for what your son has already done. We want to thank you and recognize that it is because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that we can have eternal life. And because that life is available to us, we want to celebrate your resurrection today. Tomorrow commemorates that resurrection. It was on the Sabbath that you rested. That's what we're doing today. We ask, Father, that we would continue to rest in you in every area of our lives so that when Jesus does come, we can be ready to go home with him. Show us something new today. 
that would help us to get closer to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20. Just to make sure you're paying attention. What book did I say at home? What what, what book did I say? John. That's right. John chapter 20. Starting in verse 1 and reading to verse 9. I have it for you on the screen. And you should be able to see it in just a second. Um, And we want to read it together. John chapter 20. Starting in verse 1 and reading to verse 9. The Bible says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linens. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Who says amen to God's word today? They have experienced the most sobering reality of their lives. They hoped this day would not come, but alas, it has. Jesus, the Son of God, is dead. They observed his horrific beating. They watched as the crown of thorns was placed on his head. They witnessed his weakened body collapsing underneath the weight of the rugged cross. They gazed as the sharp, cold nails were pounded into his hands and feet, and they heard him cry, It is finished. They watched him breathe his last breath. The Son of God is dead. But to make matters worse, when Sunday morning came, his body was not in the tomb. Where had it gone, they thought. It was early Sunday morning, still dark, the Bible says, and Mary Magdalene went to check on her Savior. Jewish mourners were known to visit tombs within three days of burial. So what she was doing was not unusual. But much to her dismay, when she reached the tomb, Christ's body was not there. Only the grave clothes, folded neatly in place, were left behind. Mary was disheartened and dejected, but only for a few minutes. Because while she was weeping for her Lord, he appeared to her. But she didn't know who he was at first. She first thought he was the gardener responsible for moving his body. She implored him to tell her where he put the body of Jesus. But then Jesus does something. Jesus calls Mary by name. 
And at that moment, she recognizes his voice. She hadn't detected it before when he called her woman, but when he called her by name, she knew exactly who he was, and she responded with, Rabboni, which means teacher in Aramaic. Now let me pause here for a second just to say that there's something that happens when Jesus calls us by name. We may not see him clearly at first because of the bitter circumstances of our lives, but then he gets personal with us and he uses our given name and we know in that moment that he remembers us after all. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He hasn't forgotten about us after all. Jesus, the Son of God, cares about us. Glory to his matchless name. Mary was so excited that she ran to tell the disciples the good news. Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. Everything he said was true. And balance is restored to the earth. The one who came to make things right had fulfilled his mission indeed. It was a mission given to him by his father. The same mission that was laid from the foundations of the world. The assignment that he had to accomplish or else this world would be lost. Jesus did it and now his people know it with a certainty. But what happened to us over the years. Why is it that we have lost perspective during Easter season? Why is our joy and happiness about the resurrection of our Lord not visible during this weekend? If there is a time during the year that Christians should have no excuse but to be happy, it's resurrection weekend because of what it represents for us. When I come to church on Easter Sabbath, though, I don't usually see anything different in the eyes of the people of God. And I can't compute that. I can't comprehend that. We should have a spring in our step and, and a song in our hearts. It should be every Sabbath like that, but especially on the weekend of Easter. Jesus is alive, and we have eternal life. Maybe we just need to be reacquainted with what the true meaning of the season actually is. Or maybe something else is going on. Maybe this has more to do with the way that sometimes we think about celebrating holidays, specifically Christmas and Easter. I want to remind you of something. Do you realize that the devil cannot create anything? The devil doesn't create things. The devil simply perverts what God has already created. And there are times when the devil perverts things for his purposes. And because he repurposed that thing, we start to think that was his creation in the first place and not God's. And I think that's what's happened with Christmas and Easter. Because the devil has found a way to divert our attention to the commercial aspects of it, because he has taken Christ out of Christmas and Easter, we sometimes think he's the one that created this holiday in the first place. But the devil can't create. All he can do is pervert. Maybe that's why some of us do not celebrate the way that we should. Let's get the thing back that should be there in the first place. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And that is cause for celebration. We should be excited about that on Easter weekend. Who says amen to that? Say amen at home today. 
There are two outcomes that the devil wants when he contaminates the things of God. First of all, he wants to keep people who don't know better from learning the true meaning that God has designed for humanity to recognize. There are many who grow up never knowing that Easter is about Jesus. All they know is that they get to eat cream-filled chocolate Cadbury bunnies and dye Easter eggs for the big Easter egg hunt. That's his outcome for the non-believer, and he wants to keep them from knowing the truth, and so that's why he perverts the things the way that he does. But his second outcome is designed specifically for the believer. He knows that they already have a knowledge of the true meaning, and so he aims to dilute or water down its effects in their lives. So that when we come to a holiday like Easter, we don't really get in touch with the ecstasy that comes from knowing our salvation is sure because Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb. Satan has filled the holiday with so many other concerns that even the believer who has knowledge really never gets in touch with what Jesus Christ wants us to commemorate during this Easter season. So we need to counteract what the enemy has done and get in touch with what it is that the resurrection reveals for us. So, here is our governing question for today's message. Here it is, because I believe there are revelations that are found about this resurrection that can give us hope. So the question for today is this, what does the resurrection reveal? What does it reveal? I hope to show you three things today. The first one's in Matthew 16, the second is in John 10, and the third is in Luke 24. So we're going to go to three different gospel books today. Matthew 16, John 10, and then Luke 24. We're going to start in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. This message, the resurrection revealed. What does the resurrection reveal to us? Here is the first verse, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. The Bible says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say? That I am. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then verse 17, I love this verse. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, You got that right, Jack. <laughs> I am the Son of Man, just like, you know, people saying something else. But you learned this thing not because of flesh and blood, but my heavenly Father revealed it to you. Who says amen to God's word today? Here is the first thing that we, re- we, we realize about the resurrection. The resurrection reveals Jesus' identity. So repeat after me at home. My Jesus is who he claims to be. Say it again. My Jesus is who he claims to be. And if you believe that, say amen. But, do you know who Jesus claimed to be? Now, some of us know and acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. I think John 3.16 makes that pretty clear. Everybody knows the text, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That text shows us that Jesus is the Son 
of God because God gave his only begotten son and we know Jesus is the one who came and gave his life for us. That's very clear. The son referred to in that beautiful text is Jesus Christ. But what is Jesus doing here by calling himself the son of man? The first time we ever hear that phrase, son of man, is in the Old Testament book of Daniel. But it turns out that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than 90 times in the Gospels. If we look back at Daniel's vision, we find out what this son of man figure is and who, uh, who, who it is that overturns all powerful structures of the world and establishes a completely new arrangement of the world. This is what the Son of Man does, according to Daniel. I have a friend, his name is Ty Gibson, and he wrote a book entitled The Sonship of Christ. It's an excellent book, you should get it. He comments on this very subject by saying this. Daniel foretells the coming of a kingdom that rules by the counterintuitive ways of humility and self-sacrifice. Later on, he says this. God will establish his radically different kingdom as an inside job from within humanity's own genetic realm. The alternative order of things, in other words, will be established by the Son of Man. So by using this term, Son of Man... Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament prophecies. By his chosen nomenclature, he reveals a secret about how he plans to overthrow the powers of the enemy. Not by force, as most human beings would think, but instead through surrender. This is the Son of Man thing being embodied, as we already saw in the book of Daniel. As the Son of God... Jesus is equal with his father, which we saw, John 3.16, the son of God, and the son of man here in the Gospels that Jesus uses a bunch of times. But Jesus is not God's biological son, created by God at some distant point in eternity past. Instead, he is God's son by deliberate designation made possible through the incarnation, not through creation. So that the Godhead chose from the beginning that Jesus would be a designated son and as such would be equal with God. They wanted to demonstrate something about their familial relationship that we might do well to understand. The equality is obvious when you consider the passing on of property. You've heard of a birthright before, right? The birthright is the way that we show and should understand this equality between father and son. See, this is counterintuitive because my son is 15 years old, and before this year, he could not beat me in anything. He was not my equal. My son, you would say, was inferior to me. Now, he's 15, and in many ways, my son is now beginning to outdo me. For instance, when we run together in the morning, when it comes time for us to sprint the last, I don't know, uh, maybe quarter mile to the house, I never, what did I just say? I never, I never beat my son in a foot race now. He is becoming better than me. So now, in many ways, he is better than me, and we're still not equal. 
So it's hard to understand this equality thing when we think about a father-son relationship. But what I think the Bible has in mind here is specifically the idea of the birthright. When we recognize it there, we see a very different thing. Let me show it to you this way. The firstborn son in ancient Jewish families would automatically have the right of ownership of his father's things in the event that the father passes away. Everybody knows this. He doesn't have to request it. He doesn't have to negotiate for it. There's no need to reposition himself in any way because it's his right by virtue of his position of birth. In other words, what belongs to the father automatically belongs to the firstborn son because he's the firstborn. It's his birthright. In this way, they are equals. They have all the same rights and privileges. This is why they chose to call Jesus the firstborn of the father. That's the reason. Trying to demonstrate equality. Here's my friend Ty Gibson again. Listen to this. When the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the son of God, it is telling us that he is the new head of Adam's race. When the New Testament tells us that he is the son of man, it is telling us that he now occupies the throne of the eternal kingdom as a full-fledged member of the human race in Adam's lineage. Through the kingdom-building word of the son of man, humanity has been reinstalled as the benevolent ruler of the world. Do you see it? Jesus is saying that he is both the son of God and the son of man. In other words, Jesus single-handedly reconnects the broken relationship that was severed between God and man in the Garden of Eden. And that's the only way it's possible for him to redeem us to himself. By becoming human while retaining his divinity, Jesus mixes Two unmixable species to make us related to himself once again. He is the son of God and the son of man. And we need him to be both if we want a snowball's chance to make it in heaven instead of the hot place. But how does the resurrection of Jesus reinforce and reveal his identity? You haven't connected the dots yet, Pastor. Well, here it is. If we look further down in the same Matthew 16 text, Jesus refers to himself in verse 13 as the son of man. And then if you go down to verse 21, still Matthew 16, look what the Bible says there. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day, be raised to life. That's very interesting. There it is. Son of man predicting his death and resurrection. Now look at verse 27. Here's the kicker. Verse 27. Still Matthew 16. Still the son of man talking. For the son of man, calls himself that right there, is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and then he'll reward each person according to what they have done. There it is right there. Both Son of God and Son of Man in the same text. This is who Jesus says he is. He predicts his own death 
and resurrection. Then he ties it all to the second coming when the Son of Man rewards people according to what they have done. So that when Jesus rises from the dead, he is doing so as the Son of Man, ready to redeem us to himself. Do you see it? His resurrection reveals his identity. Glory to the Son of God. Glory to the Son of Man. Here's the second one. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. So the first thing it does, the resurrection of Jesus reveals his identity. But the second thing, John 10, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says here, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. In verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Who says amen to God's word today? No one could keep him in the tomb. And so here is the second thing that we learn. The resurrection reveals Jesus's power. First thing it reveals is his identity. The second thing it reveals is his power. Repeat after me. Jesus has the power he claims to have. Say it one more time. Jesus has the power he claims to have. If you believe that, say amen today. No one could keep him in the tomb. The Romans killed him and they made sure he was dead. They took a spear And opened up his side. And the Bible says that blood and water flowed from the womb. The wound, not the womb. (laughs) They were sure he was dead. They took him and put him in the tomb. They sealed the tomb with a heavy stone. Then they placed guards at the entrance to make sure that no one would bother the grave. The guards were there 24 hours a day. Yet... They could not stop him from rising from the dead. I love the way that the contemporary English version puts the text. This is John 10, 18. Same thing as I'd read before, but but different version. No one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and the power to receive it back again, just as my father commanded me to do. No matter what they did, they could not keep him in the grave. The grave is empty right now simply because Jesus said he would rise again. And that is why the tomb is empty. That is why there's no one there. No wrapped up dead buried body. They had no power to to keep him in the grave. And he had all power to raise himself from the dead. And he did. His resurrection is the one that proves it. He is the resurrection and the life. This is why Christians are able to live so differently from the world. We have an understanding about the power of God that causes us to walk in liberty. We don't fear like the world fears. We don't fret like the world frets. We don't worry like the world worries, even during COVID-19. It's because we know that Jesus has the power that he claims to have. And if Jesus has power over death and the grave, he certainly has power over the little things that come up in our lives. So I think I told you before that when I was 30 years old, I found out that I had cancer. And when I found out, I was actually more worried about the reaction of my children 
my wife and my family and friends than I was that I would die. I, I, I actually, for some reason, was very confident this time. And I think I was so confident because I had seen the power of God in my life before. In 2001, my wife and I were in a very serious car accident. My brother and his girlfriend at the time were in the car with us. And we went off of a cliff. I told you that story before. At 80 miles an hour, we hit nose first and flipped over several times. I have a friend who was commenting, looking at the picture recently, said, you know, I didn't even recognize what kind of car it was. It looked like a crushed up soda can. In fact, we should probably do a challenge and and, and show people the picture and see, can you figure out the make and model of the car? That's how messed up it was. It turns out all four of us came out of that alive. Uh, We had some issues. We had surgeries and different things we had to do and stuff like that. It was bad. But we're all alive and kicking right now. All four of us doing extremely well in our lives. And the Lord has blessed us because he had power to sustain us even during that difficult time. In fact, I always say that when I get to heaven, I want Jesus to replay that accident for me so I can see how he had the angels make the car land just right so that it would be damaged and messed up and we would end up getting injured but not die. Only God has the power to be able to accomplish that. And because I saw the power of God in my life in 2001, of 10 years later when I found out I had cancer, I wasn't worried about my own life. I was more worried about how other people were going to react to it. Because I had seen the power of God. And I knew that if God has the power over death and the grave, God has the power to be able to cure cancer too. That's no big deal for him. So the same might be true for you right now. Maybe you have a loved one who has COVID-19 and you're worried that the coronavirus is going to take them out. Maybe it's you yourself. Let me tell you something. That is nothing for God. Literally nothing. Jesus came back from the second death. You don't think he can cure (laughs) COVID-19? That's literally nothing for him. I've seen God do some amazing things in my own life. And because I have seen his power, I know he has the power to make me cancer-free, which he has done. And every time I go to the doctor, uh, they check me out again and they see and they tell me whatever's going on. But I already know, because God has power over death and the grave, cancer is nothing for him. And the little thing you're going through right now in your life is nothing for him as well. Jesus conquered death in the grave. He can handle your little problems. Jesus has the power that he claims to have. The resurrection reveals this. Last one. Luke 24, verses 1 through 8. I like reading this Lucan account because uh, you'll see it's very interesting. Look at this. Same thing we read kind of earlier from John, uh, but a little bit different. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman, women took the spices they had prepped, prepared, excuse me, and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, Jesus ain't here because he's alive. (laughs) He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then verse 8. 
they, then they remembered his words. Who says amen to God's word today? Here's the last thing that the resurrection reveals. Here it is. The resurrection reveals that Jesus does what he says he will do. Repeat after me. Our Lord keeps his promises. Say it again like you mean it. Our Lord keeps his promises. If you believe that, say amen. We serve a promise-keeping God. Jesus always keeps his promises. When the women went back to the tomb to anoint the body of Christ, they noticed the body of Jesus was already gone. They saw two men in shining garments. Based on the way that they were described, these are probably angels. And they reminded these women that Jesus said something to them. Jesus had promised that some things would happen. And the angels reminded the women. Now what did he say he would do? He said he would rise from the grave. Now it's one thing to say it and it's an entirely different thing to do it. Anyone can claim that they'll rise from the grave, but only one has ever done it on his own power and his name is Jesus Christ. Everything happened just as he said it would. He predicted his suffering, and it happened just like he said. He predicted his death, and it happened just like he said. He even predicted his resurrection down to the day. And it happened just like he said it would happen. I don't know about you, but that tells me that Jesus always keeps his word. It lets me know that I can trust what he tells me. I can rest assured that if he says it, I can believe it, and that should settle it. I don't have to doubt. I don't have to wonder whether or not he'll come through. I don't have to feel like he'll forget about me. If Jesus says, son, it's going to happen on Tuesday, then come Monday night, you're not going to see me biting my nails wondering if Jesus is going to come through. He told me it was going to happen, and it's going to happen. I know when Jesus says it, he'll do it. It's going to happen just like he says he would. God is a promise-keeping God. I'll tell you what's funny. April and I learned very early in our marriage when we had kids that we should never make promises to our children. You know why? Because when you make a promise that you're going to do something, your kids will never forget it. By the way, just for the record, your kids will always forget when you say brush your teeth, Wash your face, take a shower, clean your whole body. They'll forget that all the time. Do your homework. But they'll never forget it when it's a promise for something that they want to do. So April and I, you know what we do? We have mastered the art of using words like maybe, perhaps, and that's a possibility. Because we know if we make a promise, our kids will never forget it if we don't keep it. There's something about making a promise that for whatever reason, kids want you to keep that thing. And guess what? We're just like that as human beings. If the Lord makes a promise to me, I want him to keep it because all his promises are true and all of them are good. And if he tells me he's going to do something for me, I want him to come through for me. And it turns out I never have to worry because Jesus always keeps his promises. The resurrection proves that. He promised he would raise from the dead. And guess what happened on the third day? Just like he said, he came back to life. Our Lord doesn't worry about not having to keep promises because you know what? He's the God of the universe. He has all power in his hands. And so there's no reason he can't do what he says he will do. The resurrection reveals that Jesus does what he says he'll do. So that's it. Jesus is who he says he is. He's God equal to the Father. Jesus has the power he says he has. 
He can overcome any problem, no matter how big or small in your life. And Jesus is able to do what he says he will do. He always keeps his promises. That's what the resurrection reveals. I, for one, am happy about that. What about you? If you're happy about what the resurrection reveals, raise your hand right now. If you believe that Jesus can do all that he says, raise your other hand right now. Now look up and say, I surrender. Praise the Lord. Let me close with this. Many of you know that uh, my grandfather, that is my mother's father, had a stroke a couple of weeks ago and actually is right now on his deathbed. We gave an update recently that they released him to hospice. And earlier this week, I think it was yesterday, my mother and I spoke And she said they gave him 48 to 72 hours to live. Now, you're wondering why I'm not down in the dumps and super sad. It's because of the age of my grandfather. My grandfather, uh, based on whichever census you go by, will either be 93 or 95 on his birthday this year. And we choose to believe it's 95, but either way, 93 is a good amount of time as well. (laughs) My grandfather has a, a, a very interesting origin story that I'll tell you about another time. Needless to say, uh, he doesn't know what his exact birthday is. And based on the census information, he was either born two years earlier or two years later. (laughs) So it'll be either 95 or 93 this year. He's had a great life. My grandfather is one of those people that just about everybody likes because He's a jovial, fun-loving, sort of has a boyish charm. He had a lot of energy. In his 95 years, I I never saw my grandfather sick. In fact, I can only remember one time he was in the hospital besides right now, and that is when he had prostate cancer. About 20 years ago, he had surgery, and he bounced back with no problem, came back, and everything was fine. Grandfather always had a lot of energy. There was something about my grandfather, though, that made him universally likable, and that was his willingness to sacrifice his body on behalf of somebody else. (laughs) Granddad was was very giving, but uh, specifically with his body. I want to tell you a story right now. When I first joined the ministry in the year 2000, I was hired by the South Atlantic Conference, and we have our camp meetings down there in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Orangeburg is where my my mother was born, and that's where my grandfather lives, Orangeburg, South Carolina. He's the head elder at the local Adventist church there. Now, the camp superintendent was a guy named Brother Dawkins, and Brother Dawkins knew that every year when it came time to set up the campground, that he could always count on my grandfather, that's Elder Fields, to come through to help set up the tents. Now, to say the word help is probably a little bit misleading because he really led the process, and he did so in a way that if there was ever any problem with any of the tents, my grandfather, granddaddy, would get up and do whatever needed to be done. Now, I need to pause and just tell you that 20 years ago, my grandfather was 75. I don't know if you can do quick math like that. If he's 95 this year, he's about 75 then. 75 years old, and I learned how to put up tents on Brother Dawkins and my granddaddy. I remember this one time in 2000. We were setting up the big tent. The big tent sat about, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 people. It was a huge tent. We're setting it up, and everything, we did it where it was supposed to be done. The center pole in the tent is the tallest of all the poles. 
and there was this long stake at the top of it, and the tent had these holes in it secured by grommets, and all you would do is put the hole in there, in the uh, put the tent in the peg where it's supposed to go, and then raise all of those uh, tent pegs up, and all of a sudden you have a tent that's up. Well, the problem was something was wrong with that center pole. Something happened, and that grommet ended up not going over that in the right way. And if you didn't have it on, a gust of wind could come and blow the whole thing down. Guess who volunteered to climb up the pole and fix it? Yes, my 75-year-old grandfather. I tried to get him to stop. Before I, before I could really object, he was halfway up the pole. He was actually climbing the pole like a boy climbs a tree. 75 years old. Before we knew it, he was at the top of it, 35 feet in the air. And he took that little grommet hole and put it in its proper place. And that tent was secure for that season. Amazing. 75 years old, without even giving it a second thought, he was willing to put his life on the line. By the way, at 75 years old, I'm pretty sure if he had fallen from that, he would have lost his life. 75 years old, sacrificing his body to make sure that camp meeting would go well. Because people would come from miles around in order to visit Jesus himself. (laughs) My grandfather was willing to put his body on the line specifically for that. It's one of the reasons why I can smile as I think about his current condition. Because I know, I've already connected the dots. My grandfather lived a life that was pleasing to God. He lived a life that was totally sold out and surrendered to him. He wasn't perfect, but he surrendered his life to Jesus. And that same Jesus did the same thing that my grandfather was so willing to do. He put his own life on the line for humanity. Sacrificed his own body. Gave up his life so that we could live eternally. Guess what? Even if my grandfather dies today or tomorrow or the next day, he will not die the second death. You know why that's possible? Because of Jesus. If Jesus was still in the grave right now, we would all die the first time and that would be it. There'd be no need for a second death. You wouldn't be able to come back from the first. But because of Jesus Christ, because he's not in the tomb, because he rose on his own accord by his own power, we can be assured that our salvation is secure because of Jesus Christ. So today, I want to offer Jesus to you. I have no idea if you've accepted him before. I have no idea if you already were part of his family and you left his family and now you want to come back. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're accepting Jesus for the first time. Who knows? All I know is that you're here today. You're watching this broadcast either on our website or on our YouTube channel. Maybe you're joining us on Facebook. Wherever you are, just write in the comments. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you put your contact information in there, one of our pastors can call you and pray with you. We'll do it today. Put your phone number in there. We'll do it today. If you're on our website, you can go and do what it says on the screen, thetpchurch.org slash appeal. Fill out that card and do whatever you want to do on there, and we'll make sure we follow up with you so that Jesus Christ can be yours today. I hope that we don't pass this resurrection season without recognizing what Jesus Christ has done, without resubmitting ourselves to him, securing our salvation in him. I hope you don't let this opportunity pass. Jesus wants to be your Lord and Savior. Won't you let him in? Father, I pray. I pray right now 
for that man, that woman, that boy or girl who is in the valley of decision right now. And I thank you for giving them this opportunity to be able to make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. Lord, I'm asking right now that you would do something special for them. Would you, would you send your Holy Spirit right now? Your Spirit's already there, but would you, would you intensify, intensify your Spirit right now in them? May they know that He is there calling them to make this decision, and may they have the power to do it. Help them, Father, from this day forward to never go back to their old way, but instead to follow you until Jesus Christ comes the second time. Help them to walk securely after him. Father, if they need Bible study, help us to give it to them. If they need special prayer, we'll do that too. Father, I'm asking right now that you would loose them from the bonds of sin, that you would help them to overcome their habits, that you would allow them from this day forward to only follow you, so that when you come, they can look up and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he will save us. Bring that day soon. In the worthy name of Jesus. Let everyone say together. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope to see you in about an hour or so at 3 o'clock. Actually, I'm not even sure what time it is. Maybe it's two hours from now. It's probably closer to 1 o'clock right now. Sorry about that. At 3 o'clock today, we are going to be celebrating this Easter season. We're continuing uh, by rebroadcasting our 2018 Easter concert. And so if you join us on any of our platforms, you'll see us there live at 3 p.m. And then again, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., we will relive the 2019 Easter concert in hopes that this will bring you closer to the throne of grace and that you will live with Jesus until he comes. May God bless you. We'll see you next week, the same spot, same time. God bless.